all of us have made donations online. All of us have received newsletters from nonprofits. They, they're such an important part of our society, of our democracy. And, you know, they help so many folks in need, whether it's human rights, the environment, or, you know, your church or whatever it might be. Like, we don't realize just the, how important nonprofits are to the fabric of, 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 of the U.S. and Canada. And we serve them. So we serve the people doing the fundraising. What is up, everyone? Today's guest began his career at the age of 13 and has refused to look back. He has taken the nonprofit sector by storm and is on a mission to help nonprofits around the world increase the amount of funds they have access to. To date, his platform has raised almost a billion dollars and his work is just getting started. But his journey has been far from a yellow brick road, so all those obstacles are going to be what we talk about and dive in on today. My favorite part of the discussion is when we go deep on making sure to provide transparent, clear feedback to your team and how evolving from a startup to growth stage sometimes feels like you're rebuilding the whole company. His name, Najid Kassam, his company, Kila. This is the Dirt Podcast. And as always, I am your host, Jim Barnish. Shout out to our sponsor, Orchid Black. And if you love what we're doing, let us know by posting this episode on your social media. All right, Najid, let's dive in. How in the world did you get your start at age 13 in business? The hustle's real, baby. No question <laughs> about that. No matter how old you are, the hustle's real, baby. Um, firstly, it's a pleasure to be here, so thanks so much for having me. Uh, great first question. Um, I'm a tennis player. Well, aspiring. I used to be really good when I was a kid, and age has taken its toll, but um, Tennis is actually the reason I started. Um, this is a long time ago, and I'm not going to say how many years, but it was decades that um, I was a 13-year-old, you know, obsessed about my serve and my forehand and all these kinds of things. And in those days, for all the listeners who have assumed video cameras existed only on phones, we had <laughs> big mama video cameras that were mounted on tripods that record stuff. And so, right. honestly, like I wanted to get a video camera to record record my serve in tennis. Um, and I have two younger brothers that are 18 months younger than me, and we are all athletes. And so, you know, we went to dad and said, dad, we want this video camera. But in those days, it was like 5,000, 4,000. It was like a lot of money, you know? And so yeah. my dad was like, you know, he could have afforded it, I'm sure. But he wanted to kind of teach us, or I don't know what he wanted to do. And he said, look, I'm not going to just buy you a friggin' video camera. But I'll buy you a camera. I'll loan you the money buy a camera, I'll be your first customer. But you got to, if you want to make videos for that, you got to find something to make it work. You know, you got to make, you know, the hustle's real, right? To the point that I made. And so he was our first customer. We started doing promotional videos. We branched out to like business cards, letterheads, menus at restaurants. We did some bus ads. We did a bus ad at one point. So we built like a little mark. I guess they call it up. These days we call it like a marketing agency, a design agency. And we were kids, but you know, we wanted to work on our serves. And over the course of five years or whatever, till we gra I graduated high school, we made tens of thousands of dollars. Like we hustled. So I learned door-to-door -door sales. I learned rejection. I learned to work with people like printers, like suppliers or partners, all of that. And I was, I was a friggin' kid, man. And I was an ugly kid too. So like, you know, <laughs> got this ugly kid knocking on your door asking for money. But it was, I mean, it was the lesson of a lifetime for sure. That'll turn you into a seller overnight. Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, you did something that most tech companies never do. You turned EBITDA positive at age 13. Uh, I think it was notes. 14. I think it was after my birthday, we were EBITDA positive. So, you know, I got to give All credit right. to time. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> and we can talk about that too later. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. So, well, no, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it now. So, it. so no time like the present, right? So, so EBITDA positive. Talk to me. You know, so I, I'm a corporate lawyer. I guess I'm a recovering corporate lawyer. So, you know, I go to my meetings and everything. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, um, I come from traditional business. My grandfather was in real estate, um, you know, where he was even a positive, essentially right, at, right up front, right, obviously. And so, you know, and he built his business twice because he, he built it in East Africa. It was, you know, kind of taken from him and he built it again in, in England where, where my family kind of got its start in the Western world. And so that lesson has, has, has kind of stuck with me. And, and, and so in the early businesses I built that one and others, we were able to positive right away, right? Like essentially like day five or day 45. Um, when I ventured away from corporate law, corporate litigation into tech, 
you know, we're, you know, at Kila, I can say we're still not even a positive, but we've got a plan to be in the next 18 months. And when I talk to my fellow founders who are at growth stage, it's like, what are you talking about? Why are you doing that? Because to me, you know, I don't want this business, my team, our incredible product, the opportunity we have to be in the hands of somebody else. If we've got to slow down growth, let's slow down friggin' growth. Do I want to? Hell no. But do I know that I want to control my own destiny as much as I possibly can in a world of inflation and instability and capital up and down and bank failures and God know what else is going to happen? If I cannot mm-hmm. rely on others and continue to grow 50, 60, 70% year over year, I'll take that rather than rolling the dice and growing 200% and maybe doing it, maybe not, maybe getting enough money we need. And so, you know, it comes from my family history, but it's also like a core belief to, to me as a person. And we're putting our business on that path over the next kind of 18 months. Well, it's this, it's this trade-off that you always have around uh, growth and profitability, around mm-hmm. raising money and ownership of the business, right? Um, and um, and it's, it's a tough trade-off because you got to make For a lot sure. of really hard calls. Have, have you ever fundraised before? Yeah. So we, we raise money, like, you know, up until now, we've, but not from venture. So we've raised from family offices, angels. I put in a bunch of money, uh, incredible investor group. But for the most part, they've been advisors. We have an independent board, so there's governance. But they've let me kind of build and do what I think is best for the business. And I know much more about the industry than they ever will, right? I'm, you right. Know, you know, we sell technology to nonprofits and governments and, and focus on fundraisers and folks raising money. I've done that work. I've worked in and around nonprofits for decades. So when they're saying, this is how you should grow, part of me, it's great to take in. It's great to listen. It's great to process. But they might not know what the hell they're talking about because what works in oil and gas SaaS might not work in nonprofit and government SaaS, for example. And so, you know, I've taken the capital. We have incredible advisors, but it's given me a degree of independence and critical thinking. And it's real as a lawyer, that's really important to me where I can actually think about problems pitch ideas, get feedback. It's not that I think I'm got I'm not that smart, right? But it's given me the room to do that instead of having to follow some I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but BS formula yeah, that yeah, bullshit, like bullshit formula yeah. that some people think, you know, a, a group of people on Sand, Sand Hill in California think is the right way to grow. And I think right. I can build a bigger, more powerful, more influential business without taking that kind of capital. Than I can with it, and then maybe that's hubris, and I and I'll own that. But and, and maybe in the future I change my mind. But that's kind of where I stand now, and those are my beliefs. I love that. We need to throw a little like clapping emoji in here somewhere. Um, that's funny. <laughs> so uh, so you've got a rich history in entrepreneurial nature. Um, uh, you've got um, your own background of getting started at age thirteen. Um, you have, have conquered a lot of things over the course of, uh, a very, a relatively young existence mm-hmm. so far on this earth. Um, and now you're building a pretty awesome company at Kila. So, so Thank talk you. to me about, talk to me about what that is and, yeah. and how you got there. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit about what it is, what the market is and how I got there in that order. So first one is, you know, Kila builds software for nonprofits and specifically for fundraisers. So you know, all of us have made donations online. All of us have received newsletters from nonprofits. They, they're such an important part of our society, of our democracy. And, you know, they help so many folks in need, whether it's human rights, the environment, or, you know, your church or whatever it might be. Like, we don't realize just the, how important nonprofits are to the fabric of, 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 of the U.S. and Canada. And, um, and we serve them. So we serve the people doing the fundraising and they have shit jobs to be honest like it's a slog they're wonderful people they work their asses off they don't have great technology they haven't been given access to like powerful emerging technologies and so i've spent years in the space you know as a fundraiser as a board member you know i was a charity lawyer and uh and i was like we got to do better we got to do better for this vitally important sector we got to not just have like second class software. We got to build the best software in the world specifically for them because they deserve it. And there's, it's so important that they do. Right. So 
That's kind of the journey we started out to do. We're a, we're a donor management tool. If you've made a donation online, you know, through a form, that could be our technology. If you've received a receipt from a nonprofit for a donation, that could be our technology. You know, we've got, I think we're in all 50 states now with customers wow. and all across Canada and Australia and New Zealand. And so, you know, and we're doing cool stuff too. We're using like predictive analytics and machine learning to help fundraisers predict should I ask Jim now? Should I ask Jim in three months? What's going to be you know, better for, for, for my time and more likely to give a positive result? We're, we're adding things yeah. like automation and workflows, really dope stuff, right? That fundraisers really need. Um, and, and the thing I want to add is nonprofits are giant. They spend like 15 plus billion dollars a year on software in the U.S., they represent, I think it's like 5.6% of the U.S. GDP and 10.9% yeah. of the private sector workforce. Like, it's bigger than oil and gas in the U.S., right? This is not some niche. This is like a friggin' pillar. And so yeah. it's fun to be building awesome stuff for, for that market. Does that make any sense? Uh, it makes tons of sense. So let me just make sure that I don't get it wrong, though. So so predictive analytics when it, when it comes to giving and workflow, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. personal intent data, Mm -hmm. on historic data points coupled mm -hmm. with metadata mm -hmm. and and a uh, a booming market um that um it makes up five percent five point six percent of gdp it's like two trillion dollars to spend a year i think is the number yes yeah, <laughs> yeah, no so like there's a tam somewhere in there it's somewhere yeah um, somewhere in we're there. also like the system of record like that's the core of it, right? All of this stuff, all the yeah. predictive analytics, all the receding, all the forms is built on like the CRM core. So yeah, that's yeah, pretty fun. Has the, and we get to not and feel good about ourselves when we go to bed. Like you know, you get. I think we helped our customers raise like eight, nine hundred million dollars or something stupid. Lot like it's wild. That's insane. Yeah, that's it's wild. It's wild. wild. That's wild. So uh oof, man, so many questions. So. So yeah. has the non has the nonprofit sector been as receptive to predictive analytics as you expected? Yes and no. Such a friggin' lawyer answer, right? Yes and no. Um, so <laughs> I expected JD. I, I, yes, <laughs> exactly, JD, pain in the ass. It should be PIA. It's what it should be. Um, <laughs> yes, because they're so excited to get a leg up. They're so excited to make you know. There's a there's a some data that came out about like exhaustion, burnout, alcoholism, stress in the sector. So like these fundraisers go to battle every day. So are they excited at the prospect of shit? Something's going to help me out. Something's going to give me more guidance. Something's going to empower me. It's a tool in my arsenal kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the growth minded ones and the ones who have enough like emotional bandwidth, given all that crap I just talked about are fired the heck up. No, because there's also an element of fear, just like in every industry that's being, you know, challenged mm -hmm. or disrupted or changed by emerging technology. There's a question of like, what about me? What about my role? And giving is personal. It's not a transaction. It's a relationship. So how do we fundraisers and Kila, by the way, all of us are thinking, how do we allow folks to adopt and be empowered and, and helped by the technology without making the thing that makes the sector so important, the people, the community, the relationships feel transactional, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not a no, it's a no if we do it wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It, it does. And that's the challenge, but it's also the fun stuff. So follow on question there, just in mm -hmm. general around the digital landscape, how, mm -hmm. how has the digital landscape changed the way that nonprofits operate? Yeah, I mean, the, the most obvious example, and it's still crazy how little the donations come online, but like the advent of online giving, right? Yeah. Like the advent of automated recurring giving, like subscription giving, you know, that's not what we call it in the space, but it's like Netflix for giving, right? So, right. you know, it started as early as like the mid 2005s, like mid 2000s, like, you know, 2005, 2007, 2010. And it re in the last 15 years, it's just, become essentially table stakes for every organization, right? You need a, you need a donation form on your website. That's a giant digital change, right? That's, you know, um, the, the majority of correspondence with, with constituents and donors is online. It's newsletters and it's social media and it's emails up 20 years ago. It was mail right now. Right. There's still a big mail component, but I'm saying like 
that digital transformation, that's kind of the what I'm going to call the pre part of it. But what's exciting now is like the adoption and the use of data for nonprofits, demographics data, predictive analytics data, um, behavior data. Like if Jim clicks on the link of a newsletter, read more, that's a signal that there's something there that he's got interest and maybe there's, it was worth picking up the phone. When with mail, you couldn't do that with, without the right technology to say, yo, Jim just clicked on that link, hit him up, right? Like there's something there and that's part of that trans transition. And, and we think the next wave is about helping you software to crunch all those numbers to predict what could or might happen and then fundraisers to respond accordingly. So it's almost like the three waves of digital transformation, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's transformed it massively, yet only you know less than 20% of giving happens online. Wow. In terms of so you're still having a lot of checks, a lot of cash, a lot of wire transfers, a lot of like tithing bull at church kind of giving, right? Which is totally okay. So you know, there's gonna, and I don't know what it is, and I don't have the number, but there's gonna be a cap on how much can be truly digital. Now, can things mm -hmm. be like, you know, digitally enabled or digitally supported, or you know, um, where 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 and bigger gifts? People don't want to make a credit card transaction because they know that the credit card company's taking a couple of percentage points, so they're gonna write right. a check if they're making a. You know, major gifts are still fundamental to the sector, but can you? you know, enable it, support all of that with technology, maybe not the actual gift. So that, that, and, and lastly, I'll say like giving is pretty much the same as it's been for a hundred years, totally. like, like at church or temple or synagogue or mosque or at the community center, like there was giving. I mean, people ask in relatively the same way you give to the, like, and that's maybe human nature to a degree. Yeah. There's marketing and social media and, and tactics now, but, I mean, at the core of giving is something you can't change. And so there's only so much tech that can solve the problems. There's a lot of tech that can enable. So what what role in the tech enablement piece and in the tech aspect of this does do things like QR codes or paying by Bitcoin or mm -hmm. things along those lines? How, how What role do those play in the adoption of more of a tech forward uh, it's funny that you use those forward. too, because we have both of those things in Kilo, by the way. So I know you, you can do. scan a QR code and pay with Bitcoin or Ethereum <laughs> or whatever. What I'll say is they're important to open doors, but not central to survival. Hmm. So like, for example, I'll use a, a really cool example of how some of our customers use QR codes to blend old school and new school fundraising. Okay. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we have customers like there's something still about receiving a piece of mail. I don't know what it is. There's something to it, right? Especially yeah. like millennials think it's super novel and boomers think it's kind of normal, but there's an audience for that. So we've got customers that are going to do physical mailings, you know, customize them. Some of them are handwritten. And at the bottom of the thing is a QR code where you grab your cell phone, you scan and you're on a donation form that's tailored to what the message from that letter was. Totally mm -hmm. doable. So like that's, why is that interesting? It's interesting because it's old school. It's a letter. Somebody may have written it or typed it out or whatever it might be. But it's new school because it's cutting administrative time. It's making the gift instantly. It decreases processing. It means the receipt can be issued instantly, like, like as soon as the donation is made. That's, so is it central? Yes. But it's still using these sort of older methods that resonate with, with the donors. Bitcoin is most, to use that example, is like mostly about opening it up to new potential donors. There's a community of folks that think like crypto is like a way of life going forward and they want to give and they want, you know, they want this adoption and the mass market of it. And they, or they made a lot of money on it and they want to deal with capital gains or whatever the benefits are. Technology helps you increase the likelihood they're going to make that gift because it aligns with their values or their hopes or their interests. So Right. Again, is it central to like, do you need it to like raise money? No, but are there a ton of ways that it can create abundance for fundraisers and make their lives easier and make the processes better? Yes. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's, oh, that's my take on it. Yeah. Yeah. And more, and, and more. Um, it, it was, it was a great answer. So 
What do you think the key? What do you think the key is to successful donor management? Prioritization and humanity, and they're very different, right? One tech is really good at. One tech is use relatively useless for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fundraisers, no matter how big the organization, are overburdened. We just talked about that a little bit. So, you know, technology can help align, it can help validate instincts. So I like to think of like instincts are data driven, but sorry, data can inform instincts, but it can't inform the conclusion you make from the instinct, right? And that's really important. So technology can give you visibility into things like Jim clicked on a link, right? And then you use the relationship, the humanity, the community side of that, and your experience as a fundraiser to make a decision. So the, the, the tech is like a, it's not a glass ball in that it says what's going to happen, but it is a behavior predictor and a tool. And I think, you know, in most industries, that's actually the role of technology. It's not to replace people, even yeah. chat GPT and all that kind of crap. You still got to ask the right question. What's the big thing now? Prompt engineering, getting the right question with the right context. That's what it human does and the tool can do all the hard work of the other stuff that you know we don't want to do or we don't have time for the same thing with predictive analytics it has i think we have like 100 million data points like there's no human that can crunch that shit no matter what you do no matter you can i'm not that smart but there are smart people in the world they can't crunch all that data (laughs) no nobody can so let it do the work come to like a recommendation and then you use your humanity your instinct your relationships to inform your behavior so it can transform it but it doesn't replace it so how have nonprofit organizations adapted their strategies to meet the demands of today's donors i like to use recurring donors as a really good example because they're it's amazing for nonprofits and it meets a lot of folks especially like gen x millennials and gen z's kind of where they are right so we're the subscription generation. I think at this point, you know, I remember reading a business case about the risk Adobe took when they switched Photoshop from being a CD to a, a subscription. And everyone told them they were insane. I remember reading the case and it generated billions of additional revenue, like instantly and loyalty and all these kinds of things. Right. And yeah. so we're all used to subscriptions, Netflix, Spotify, Apple Plus, Paramount Plus, God, no, if we have kids, Disney Plus for sure, right? And so um, there's a comfort level for folks making these recurring donations. And they're great for nonprofits because they mean there's consistent engagement, but not the constant need to always be asking, right? And there's yeah. predictable revenue and there's all these things. And millennials and, and especially Gen Zs and millennials can't afford to make a $2,000 donation on Thursday, but they might be able to give you 50 or a hundred bucks a month because it just comes becomes part of their kind of cadence of what they spend every month. So sure. technology has facilitated all that to answer your question, right? So you can go just like you sign up for a subscription on Spotify, do a recurring donation. It's going to take care of charging your card. It's going to not bother you with a receipt every month. It'll just give it to you at the end of the year for your taxes. It'll take care of the mess. And that's how technology can like really be a boon for, for the sector as, as one example. I, mean, I can give you a hundred, but that, that one's the one I really like. And I think it's something like 50, uh, they, um, they did a report, a study on millennial giving. It's like 56% of millennials. I think that's the number are comfortable with recurring donations. It's, it's more than half. People are like, they're wow. okay with it in the U S so it's, it's wild, right? I mean, yeah, it's the membership economy. Right, exactly. subscription economy. And even Uber so, now with Uber Plus, they even though you're not getting anything for it, they want you you're pay definitely Amazon not price. getting anything on that one. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, all right, let's switch gears a little bit. Yeah, of course. I want to go back to I want to go back to Kila, um, and and um, and obviously, you know, the origin of this podcast is really all about the dirt of what companies go through and in, in making it to the next level and, and growing and and exiting mm-hmm. and things along those lines. So. Take take me back to when Kila was a few million in revenue. Um, right. What what were the or what have been the biggest challenges that you faced in developing your business since then? It's a trend. Let's let's go like one, two, whatever the threshold point. It doesn't matter. Getting sure. to zero from zero to one or one to two or whatever it is is like a knife fight. 
You just have to try really friggin' hard. With a dull knife. Run. It's right. You got like, yeah, exactly. And you just got to survive and you got to not get hit and you got to run through a wall. Right. And it, and it's, it's to a degree, it's like brute force and ignorance, right? Like yeah. two to plus two to 10, two to 20, you know, we're not quite at that to upper level yet, but it's a chess game. You've got to take, and, and that's quite a different, it's a cultural shift in, in the business. It's mm-hmm. so you've got, it's like, you got to, you got to fine tune all those hustly things that you did and apply them in a very different way. And it's different, right? You got to be more judicious about how you spend your time, especially if you're working for, to get to EBITDA positive, you got to be more just judicious about how you spend your money. You got, it's not growth at all costs. It's growth in the right way, in the most repeatable, scalable, repeatable way. So that's a mindset shift, right? And then there on the product side, you got to think about what am I doing to lead? And what am I doing to respond to my customers? Because, you know, we have a, you know, even when we had a million bucks in revenue, we had a lot of organizations with a lot of customers. We have thousands of people, even at the, I mean, we have tens of thousands of people using our tools every week now. And so it's uh, responding to like what they need versus what they want, really getting into the root of the problem, being careful about what you build, being careful about where you spend it's kind of a switch you need to do once you start to scale. And that's not a switch that it has, you know, kind of longer tail ramifications. It may mean it's not the same people that are doing it. It maybe means you've been doing something one way that you've got to evolve to doing it a relatively largely different way. And, and I think if organizations don't think about it differently, and it doesn't have to happen overnight, obviously, but they're going to stagnate. And so that's yeah. why you see a lot of folks that hit, like, honestly, I think I, I think I read the largest number of, uh, of, uh, startups stall between one and two, you know, you, like yeah. get to one. That's like a huge, like rip your shirt off, happy milestone. And then they kind of try to do the same thing to get to two and then from two to three and then three to five or whatever. But right. there are some changes and, and that, that's really important. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah, some drastic changes, and and you bring up a couple of things around culture, culture change, culture transition, uh, moving from early stage to growth stage, right? Um, and one thing you've said to me in the past is when when you get comfortable in the early stage, then you have to kind of rebuild <laughs> and scale it, which makes it sort of feel like a startup again, mm-hmm. right? Definitely. Can you get a little bit to that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say two things. I think it's you know getting to whatever your goal is and scale for us, it's scale, right? It's like massive scale and it's easy to hit one or two or three or whatever it is. And like, get kind of coasty, get, get comfortable, right? It's like, we've made it, but yeah, unless you're printing a million bucks a year on 3 million of revenue and even a positivity, you haven't made it right. There's so much work to be done. And even then, if it's a big market, you, you have so much to do. And so, you know, the value that I live by so much is like, you've got to always be uncomfortable in your job, in your role. You've got to, every six months, you got to question just because we've been doing it and it's worked. doesn't mean it's the right thing for the next stage or the next 12 months. Right. And it doesn't have to be six months, but it shouldn't be more than a year is my opinion. Right. Right. And so, you know, for us, that was super central and, and, and getting comfortable and getting a culture that got to comfortability, got to, you know, you want to stay the hell away from cruise control. And so for me, that's scary because it might mean letting go of some people or changing their job descriptions or whatever it might be that's going to make them uncomfortable. And you feel like, oh, man, I feel like I'm back in it again. I'm in high school asking the girl to the dance again, but I've been married for five years, right? Like, why do I feel that butterfly, that nervous, that loneliness, that pressure, whatever it might be, especially at the top, especially for the leadership teams? It's scary because you're like, I finally found something that works. But the right. problem is it worked. That doesn't mean it works. And that nuance is really important. And it's, 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 I can tell you as we've kind of are in it and now moving through it, it's not really moving through it because in six months I'm going to have to do it all over again. Right. And so it, but, but it's also what makes it fun. It's like the thrill of it too. Right. It's, it's, it's exciting to like challenge your own assumptions, push yourself to think differently, know that there's always a new frontier and, and more to do and, and more to build. And for me, I'm like a very much the builder personality. I love to build. That's what gets me fired up in the morning. 
So and usually I have a crying to- kid waking me up too. So, you know, there's that. I'm about to have one in six months. So I'll be Amen, in the same brother. boat. Praying for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, um, whoa. how do you, how do you continue to catch yourself though? As, as you get comfortable, I mean, obviously it's, it's easy, easier said than done to every three or six mm-hmm. months or whatever the cadence is, stop yourself in your tracks and say, is it working? But are there any tricks that you use to make sure that you do that and that you don't lose track of a year or two years or three years before you realize that, Oh my God, it's not working. It's a great question. I'm, I'm going to answer it without really answering it. So what I'm going to say is lawyer, find people that yeah, exactly fucking lawyers, um, <laughs> find people that will, that you can catch yourself with. So create like a kind of, like I, I have a, a mantra that says like, surround yourself, like be the dumbest guy in every room. I married a smarter woman than I, my team is brilliant, you know? So, so if you surround yourself with those people, they're not going to let you get complacent. And if Mm -hmm. they do, they're the wrong people. Right. So I don't know if that's like a trick. It's not like maybe it's setting a reminder in your calendar, like check in, check yourself kind of thing. Like it could be as simple as that, but for me, it's the people. It's like, that's the the agile iterative culture that we've built, even as we get to scale, right. Or get through to getting to scale. And so for us, it's about making sure that there's cultural alignment within the, especially in the leadership team and the management team, that that's the expectation. And you got to kind of want that. And, and because of that, if one of us is sort of, you know, stretching out on the hammock a little too much, the others can catch. And by the way, that I'm the CEO and I, I'm, I'm my chief of staff, my VP of marketing, my manager of customer success. It doesn't matter to me. They all have a responsibility to catch me just as I do to catch them. Sure. Sure. So just by to the way, it can be tough it. on the ego. Oh my God. Yeah. No kidding. But it's good. Oh, that humility, okay. like that humble pie is so key, man. So whether it's your, whether it's your wife at home or, uh, or your team at the business, having the right people to catch you. If for some reason your calendar alert doesn't go off every three months and say, Hey, have you checked yourself? Um, you've got the right people in the right network around you. And you need to and make your sure board that- and your advisors, it's bigger than just your team. Right. Totally, but yeah, totally. but they have yeah. to have the same alignment. And this is where we learned a lot, right? We got to make sure that all the people as they grow, as the business grows, continue to have, if that's a core culture, and I believe it's a core cultural, um, asset for a, for a business, especially getting to scale, they've yeah. got to also make sure that they feel that same mentality and that they're bought into that. Because if they're not, how can they catch you? Right. Right. That's a great point. That's a great point. So and that's what um, I missed, by the way. That's the part I missed. I didn't make sure that a lot of everyone in the same way was bought in, that they understood that value in the same way. It wasn't even necessarily about them. It could have been about the communication or um, how... Um, it's such a values are such an obtuse thing, right? It's like how to exemplify it, how to call it out for good, how to call it out for not so good. And so, you know, that's on me. I take accountability for the times that we've struggled through that. And I've worked really hard over the last six to 12 months to, to kind of hunker down to make sure that the alignment is there. So how you've done that now, how was it? How was it then? Like how, how did, how did this evolve over time so that, you know, you're now making the right decisions around these things? You used a good word evolve, right? Like I'm not preaching revolution here. I think yeah. I, I had, I, 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 I'm a, I'm an executor. I love to do stuff. I love to put my head down, take my pen, get in my spreadsheets and work. Right. And Sometimes it's easy to think, oh, we wrote the values on the website or they're printed on the wall at the off, right? Like people will buy into them. But, you know, as a CEO, my job is to make sure the troops are all rallied around not only the same OKR from a revenue perspective for this year, but also like what those values mean and how people are are living and working by them and what, whether, and, and they're probably going to change. The context of them is going to change as the business grows and evolves as it naturally does. So what I learned in that process is it's sort of, this, it's kind of like, it's a bit circular because the same thing where you got to re-examine the business with how marketing is done or sales is done. You also have to think about that, about how you re-examine how your team is digesting and living the cultural stuff. And that's where I was not as vigilant. Um, And that's, again, that's on me, right? 
So, so you're now beginning to to scale your business with a workforce of millennials, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as are a lot of other businesses, not just you. Mm-hmm. Has that been challenging you as a different type of leader? Millennials have an incredible passion. They have a deep care, and especially for a business like ours, where impact is like such a currency for which they get rewarded as beyond just their salary. Like we're so lucky to get people so fired up. I think what's really key for me is making sure that the expectations of the work culture are really well laid out because the general work culture is different from when I kind of started my career, right? It's just a different, you know, I I started in I worked in politics and in corporate law. Like, you know, it's a, it's a very different work culture and the tech work culture, especially during the super, super frothy times. And I'm thinking like 18 to 21 or whatever that was where, you know, it was, it was not necessarily in alignment of what the gritty kind of high accountability, high stuff that we just talked about, right. At at our business. And so it's about communicating up front when people are applying, what the expectations are. It's about attracting a certain kind of people for us, the builder mentality. Um, it's about um, making sure that there's values alignment like we just talked about. And if you can do that and kind of check yourself on that, millennials are can be phenomenal and are amazing. We've got a ton of inspiring folks. I think if you don't do that, though, it can be dangerous because there's so much noise out there. There are so many, you know, social media and this and that, and, you know, almost like preconceived notions about what working in tech can or should be that there is a danger to falling out of what we need or, and continue to need as a business. Yeah. Well said. So how, how does that, um, we're going to use that word evolve you love again, right? Um, how, how does that, how does that, evolution in the workforce work as companies are um, putting millennial leaders in place Mm -hmm. are hiring more millennials, right? How, Mm -hmm. How does that, how does that, how does that evolve as a business? You know, I think it's, it's really about what you're doing to train and teach and empower and educate consistently because it's an evolution that you know, you got to keep working on your staff ultimately, right? As much as, you know, the, at, at some point, and I think we're getting close to that with the amount of people we've got, my job is to empower the people to empower their people, right? And, I, and we're not a big hierarchy. And, and I, I still, I did a discovery call last week, right? Like I'm still in it. But, you know, so much of my job is coaching my team, especially as a CEO, right? Coaching them on, how to lead their team, coaching them on how to put out challenges. And sometimes I think, damn, it'd just be easier for me to do the damn work, but that's not scalable, right? And so, you know, as these younger leaders grow and evolve and get into management and then eventually leadership, you know, those of us who've got a little more gray in our beards or in our hair, our job is to make sure that we're constantly teaching, communicating. And part of that is culture and values, like we talked about. And part of that is some of the harder stuff. And I think that's how you um, make sure that there's alignment across the business and you empower these younger folks to, to do really well for themselves and but also for you, right? For you and, a, yeah. and for the business. Yeah. That gray hair must be why you and I tend to wear hats, huh? <laughs> yes, sir. And why my wife makes me shave because, you know, the whole, my, I have a three-year-old at home and he, he pulls the gray in my beard and says, Dada, why is there so much gray in your face? And you know, think, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Thanks, kiddo. Nothing <laughs> like a slap like that, huh? Right? Wow. Seven in the morning, he crawls into bed with you and he's like, tell me about your gray hair. You're like, you know, welcome to fatherhood, right? <laughs> uh, awesome. So you uh, you mentioned a couple things about... Um, might I might butcher it as I say it, but I would categorize it as kind of uh, hyper prioritization um, around doing certain things and um, and focus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that focus having uh, a certain level of transparency, a pretty mm-hmm. heavy level of transparency mm-hmm. as it relates to uh, everything from values to general rules of engagement and, and mm-hmm. working with customers and working with the team. 
what, <clears throat> how did that focus and hyper prioritization, how does that take place in the culture? Um, Great question. And, so I'm going to tell you how we did it wrong a couple times and, or, you know, and then what we've learned from that. Cause I think it'll answer your question. So I'll give you an example during the pandemic, right? We all moved basically overnight from being in a room or, you know, a, a half a floor of an office or whatever it was to sitting at home on zoom. Right. And mm-hmm. what that, what happened was there was a lot of siloization of communication. And we didn't, we, and I say we, I really mean me because ultimately, you know, it's, it's my ass that's accountable here. Didn't do a good enough job of two things. One, you know, because we were in the office, it was like kind of obvious what, how things were going, you know, you know, what the tone of the week or the month was, or, you know, what was going on in the business. And it was relatively easy to like get a pulse on that for folks. And I think generally speaking, that was the case. When we moved mm-hmm. away, everyone was so focused on their team that we lost that. And so, you know, oh, that's just communication. No, it was actually a transparency thing. The transparency existed uh, like kind of by osmosis in the previous iteration of it when we were there. But when we moved away, people are like, well, nobody's telling us anything. And that it was a structural problem, but it led to an actual organizational problem, right? And so we, what I learned is, how do you most effectively share that transparency? And we do like a weekly huddle and we, every team does a weekly update and we share our, our revenue progress every week. And, you know, that's a lot of transparency, you know, we also have yeah. a company updates channel. So when we make strategic decisions, uh, we make sure we're sharing those and explaining as to why we do them. You know, for example, we screwed up. We tried to spin off a part of a product and it, it was really great, but it didn't work. The timing wasn't right, whatever it might be. We owned that. Instead of like just sort of tucking it away and not telling anybody, I don't know if we did it on the company updates channel. Or I just did it during the huddle. I don't remember. But I was like, this, we're putting a pause on this or we're stopping this or whatever. And by the fact that we said it, and then I explained why we need to focus our resources. We need to get to EBITDA, whatever it was, right? And right. even if the team was disappointed or sad about the decision, there was an alignment as to the what, firstly, what the decision was, because half the time people don't know what's going on at, at many companies and two, the why and that why part from a transparency standpoint, obviously you don't tell them everything, you know, it's, you don't want them to be stressed about things or unnecessarily worry, you know, but you got to give them enough to understand and motivate and to, to give them visibility because that'll allow them to do their jobs most effectively. And to me, that's really, really important. And I learned it. The, I gave you a couple of examples of how I learned it the hard way and, and how it's kind of changed my behavior. So, so now what processes do you guys have in place um, to encourage better collaboration, better communication, better, better prioritization? Yeah, the prioritization one's hard, but I'll, the other ones are easier. You know, we do, like I said, the weekly huddle. We have team meetings. We have a company updates channel. We're really transparent about where we are and our goals, what's working, what's not working. You know, we'll never call people out on their BS publicly, but we certainly do a lot of like positive exemplification of culture or high fives for success. So you're, you know, you know, people see, you know, it's a, it's remote for the most part, but it feels like you're there. And I think that's yeah. been a, a big benefit for the business with regards to prioritization. You know, I was actually talking, I think it was one of my team members yesterday. It was literally yesterday when I talked about the ha- fact that we, I've never had a finished to-do list and they're like, doesn't that stress you out? I'm like, no, I've learned that it shouldn't stress you out. What you got to make sure is that you're rewriting your to-do list every day or week or whatever it is where the priorities come to the top and you just choose when to stop every day or every week, right? There's going to be an unlimited amount of work. So teaching the team that puts your 50, 60 hours in, work your tail off, grind hard, but don't do 90 hours because that's not healthy. And two, it's actually not going to produce your best work. Instead, figure out, do I really need to be doing Right. This week or today or at all. And and so our management team, we've, we've you know been working with them to say, if somebody on your team says, I'm overwhelmed, great. Thank you for bringing it to me. What do you got on your plate? Let's prioritize. So it's like the fires are put out, the opportunities are taken and the rest when you, you know, it'll, 
it'll either turn into a fire or an opportunity and it'll come back up the top of the list. So building that culture of like never finished building, but never don't try to do everything has been, I think really important and continues to be important. Um, Hyper at, at least that's, that's my perspective. No, that's good. That's good. So, so now that you guys have cleared the $1 billion mark or more, I think you said almost, you did 800, almost. I think it was almost a billion, but yeah. Almost a billion. All right. So what are the what are the next major hurdles for Kila? Yeah, great question. So, you know, we you know, we we serve SMB nonprofits, kind of zero to fifteen million. Okay. Um, but historically we've done a lot of work with the S side of the S sector. But we've actually built a really dope product, a really powerful increasing return on investment for fundraising, giving fundraisers back time, like and the mid-market is starting to take notice. So now the real opportunity, it's not like we're expanding our market, but it's focusing and saying, hey, look, let's go up our market a little. Let's challenge some of the folks that thought, oh, this is our little kind of biting at our ankles company. Now we're like, can look them in the face and say, let's go toe to toe. We can win these deals. We can create the loyalty. We can build a brand around that mid-market. And and that's exciting, man. That's fun because it's more scale and I love scale and it's more impact because these orgs are bigger and they're doing more work and add those two together and it's hard not to fire my team up. Yeah, I love it. I mean, motivate, engagement, uh, hitting the goals like that is is uh, a wild feeling for a team. Absolutely. And, and the cool part is, you know, the mid-market nonprofits are not as dire in terms of survival every day so they can actually take a breath and adopt some of the emerging technology they can actually get the full value yeah. of it and 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 that's not to say there's anything like the small guys it's tough it's in the weeds right but as they grow and as they can take pause we can actually help to move them so not only are we targeting that mid-market we're moving our customers from being small nonprofits to mid-market nonprofits, and that's pretty cool too all right, Najid, let's let's close this off with our uh, founder five. So five quick hit questions all yes, around sir. your growth. All right. So uh, first one is uh, number one metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on. I'm going to say net retention. Um, mm-hmm. Gross churn net retention depends on what you I'm pretty obsessive about that one. Um, of course, top line growth, but that's the one that I like live and breathe. So just to make sure everyone knows, net retention rate is? So you take your, like from a revenue perspective, you take all the revenue you lost to churn and you then subtract or add, depending on how you do the formula, all the upsells, cross-sells expansion. So we want you know net negative churn, which means even though we lost customers and revenue, the upsells and the growth in our existing customers' revenue outpaced the revenue we lost. And we want... 105, 110, 115% retention. Yep. Or, uh, and that's, that, that, retention. that gets me fired up. That gets me fired yep. up. Love it, love it. All right, uh, next one is top tip for growth stage founders like yourself. It's different. Don't run away from the difference. Embrace it. We talked about that a little, but embrace it. Look for the difference. Challenge your own assumptions because it, it makes all the difference. That's good. All right. Uh, favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a founder? Honestly, it's kind of lame, but I'm going to say like Shoe Dog, the book on Nike by uh, by Phil Knight. The hmm. it I it's like it's sort of a fun read and also a great business book. I love that book. What he had to do to pivot Nike in the early days before it was Nike, it was a distributor of another brand's shoe. Like we don't remember that. Th- how he had to challenge his assumptions, change the business hope to damn God that things would work, you know, like the, the, the shoestring he had to balance to survive and lead to what is now, you know, a ubiquitous brand company, you know, culture. It's, it's inspiring. And I I love it. it. It's fun to read too. All right. Um, uh, business rule or piece of advice or lesson you've learned that counters traditional wisdom. Hard work is more important than intelligence. Is that the I traditional really, wisdom or the... So I think the traditional wisdom case. is that the smartest people do the best stuff. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. 
That's good. Uh, maybe I, I, I think, you know, hustle, hard work, culture will, will crush intelligence. Yeah. In my opinion. I, I don't know if that, yeah. I don't know if that's controversial enough. That's what you're going to get from me. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Lastly, what is going to be the title of your autobiography when you accomplished all you set out to achieve? As a person, I'd love it to be called Renaissance Man um, because um, I want my my mind to grow and scale, not just in business, in in literature, in music, in sports. I'm obviously an athlete. So if I get this right, I can build billion-dollar businesses, but I can also have intellectual curiosity and in, and in, and in all those other spaces. So it's That's either great. like the in, the hustler into Renaissance, something like you know, some play on the the grit and the hustle and and the Renaissance man. Hopefully, it's not a Renaissance man edition of Hustler magazine. That wouldn't be probably that the would same. be terrible. That would be terrible. That would be terrible. All right. All right, man. Uh, so closing us off, you've given a ton to our listeners here. So always allow people a little bit of time for self-promotion. How can those listening help you out? I mean, my first thing's kind of going to sound altruistic, but it's also selfish given our business. Like give, make donations, engage in your communities. It's it's good for the world. They really need it right now. A lot of folks are sort of struggling and, and it's really important. The second one is if you work, engage, volunteer with a nonprofit, tell them to holler at us at Kila. We're doing something amazing. We're going to take really great care of them. Um, and thirdly, for all you founders, and this is selfish because I'm in it and I feel it, um, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Keep going because it's a lesson that I need to hear from all of you to me and I'm going to share with you. But like, it's, it's, it's there. You, you will get through it if you believe hard enough and you work hard enough and you pivot enough. And what's the best, best way for people to get in touch with you, Najid? LinkedIn, for sure. I'm the only Najid in the world, I think, with an spelt the way I do, N-E-J-E-E-D. If you search that on LinkedIn, you will find me. And please reach out. Najid, Keela, The Dirt, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks, and uh, giving your talents for us today. Appreciate it. Well, ho hopefully this is not the last conversation we do together. Yeah, I'm sure it will not be. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.